in the hearts of human beings the capacity to be struck by beauty, even the beauty of of a song such as that. All of us, I guess, have experienced the wonder and the awe of nature's beauty. The awesomeness of God's handiwork is especially real to the believer. I remember my life before I came to know Christ at age 20, and then after having received the Lord, it, it seemed as if the song uh, that the birds uh, sang was more melodious. It seemed that the, uh, the silence of falling snow was deafening, whereas before I, I hadn't even noticed it really. Um, the color of the rainbow was captivating, whereas before I didn't really care. Um, I, I took it for granted, and now I was attracted to those kinds of things. Regarding uh, those kinds of things, regarding people, uh, I have found that <clears throat> there's also a lot of attractive qualities, but maybe one of the most attractive is the quality of humility. I guess the reason spirit born humility is so arresting, it so arrests my attention, it's so captivating, uh, is because it's so rare. It's the polar opposite of the manifestation of the flesh. What is humility? Well, it's hard to define. We can usually identify it when we see it. But the word means to lay low, to take a back seat. You doing it, you intentionally doing that, you being willing to lay low. It's the opposite of strutting one's stuff either openly and outwardly doing that or even quietly in your own heart, there can be uh, what appears to be a a lowliness, yet the heart still be filled with self. The Bible commands believers to be humble, yet humility isn't something that you can directly attain. It's not like any one of us would say, oh, finally, I've arrived at being humble. (laughs) I have finally attained that level. I've been trying to do that for so long and just made it. I'm there now. No, it's, it cannot be that kind of a thing at all. Let me give you an illustration. I'm commanded, you're commanded to hide God's word in your heart. Psalm 119, 11, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. And we are to, to study. We're to be diligent at that. And so Bible meditation and Bible memorization, therefore, is something that I must pursue. I must actually open up scripture and I must jump in and dive in. I must really consume the word of God if I'm going to follow that biblical principle of hiding God's word in my heart. It's not going to happen if I don't intentionally go after it. Another example, I'm commanded to share the gospel with the lost, as are you. And so in order to do that, I actually have to reach out and embrace this discipline. I have to come to that understanding. And, um, and even though possibly a little bit timid, maybe I'm a little unsure of myself, I still need to launch out and, in fact, go after the lost. Or it'll just be left undone in my life. Those kinds of things we pursue. We actually proactively chase those disciplines down and we seek to gain a handle on them. Humility, on the other hand, isn't something that I can grasp through my own effort. I can't work up humility. I can't uh, all of a sudden feel like I've arrived at it. Yet we're called, we're 
commanded to walk in humility. James 4.10 says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Humble yourself, that's an imperative. That verb is an imperative. It's not a suggestion. It's not a nice thought. It's not a well when you get around to. It's an imperative. Uh, You are commanded as a believer to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. It's also another interesting fact about that verb is that it's a passive imperative. An active verb would be you yourself do it. A middle verb would be um, it, uh, it is a middle voice would be uh, that uh, the, um, uh, the subject is acting, uh, or active verb is that the action is being done. A middle voice is that I'm doing it, but this is a passive voice, and that is the subject is being acted upon. And so it's a very strange construction there in James 4.10 where um, I'm commanded to be humble, and I'm commanded to humble myself, yet it's a passive verb, meaning it's going to be done to me. So how can I make somebody else humble me? That's really the idea. The construction is I am commanded to make someone else out here or something else out here humble me. How can this be? How can you humble yourself? The way you do is by it being a byproduct. Similar to what Mark was saying, that love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control is not something that you pick and choose and saying, oh, I'm going to put on some of this. But it is a byproduct of walking in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But in fact, the fruit of the spirit will be a part of your lives. And so humbling yourself is a byproduct of looking away from me and gazing upon Christ. It's glorying in the greatness of God. And as I see him magnified, I am minimized in my own heart and in my own life. In addition to all of his other qualities, the Apostle Paul modeled the attractiveness of humility. Let's look at the text. If you're taking notes in the evening um, uh, service bulletin, Acts 21, 17 through 26, the attractiveness of humility. Acts 21, beginning in verse 17. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who believe. And they are all zealous of the law. And that's a noun, by the way. It's they are zealots. Uh, They are are, uh, zealots of the Mosaic law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it, therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men who have a vow on them. Take them, uh, them take, and purify thyself with them, and pay their expenses, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning thee are nothing. But thou thyself walkest orderly, and keepest, keepest the law." As touching the Gentiles who believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing except only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from fornication. 
Then Paul took them in and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until an offering should be offered for every one of them. Two points I'd like us to consider. First of all, verses 17 through the first part of verse 20. Verse 17 through verse 20. A, humility through exploits, humility through exploits or accomplishments. It's one thing for a person who hasn't accomplished very much to seem to be somewhat humble and unassuming. But really, even that type of person can cover up his uh, his his maybe insecurity or something like that um, by seeking to tell you what he or she has done um, uh, and uh, and all the things that he or she has accomplished, even though really it might not be that that much at all. It's been said that an empty train makes the most noise. When you see a train going down the track and you hear all the clanging and and all of the moving and the and the noise and everything, chances are that train is empty because if it were full, it would be a lot more uh, cushioned and silent. And it's the same kind of a principle. A lot of times. Those who are blowhards, those who just uh, uh, are, are uh, saying all the things that they've done or, or, or going to do. I'm just I'm right. I'm just going to turn the corner. I'm going to really accomplish something great. And you hear that throughout life. A lot of times that is um, nothing more than insecurity that's coming out. And it's not humility in any way, shape or form. Paul, though, on the other hand, was full to overflowing with personal accomplishments. His exploits were unparalleled. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. You'll remember in Philippians 3, 5, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was educated by the most popular, prolific teacher of the law in the greatest rabbi of his day, Gamaliel. In 2 Corinthians 11.5, he says, For I suppose I was not a wit behind. That is, I wasn't even really an inch behind the very chiefest apostles. In other words, I measured up to any and all of the apostles. Anything they've done, I've done more. Paul, Paul knew. He's, he's coming to the end of his third mission missionary journey. And he is the one who led all three missionary journeys around the known world. He's the one who's traveled everywhere extensively. He's the one who's been persecuted uh, more than anyone else had. Uh, It says in, in Galatians one in verse 14, that he profited in the Jews religion above many, my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the tradition of my fathers. He's saying, I'm the one who knew the law. As a matter of fact, even before I was saved, I knew it so well that I wanted to go out and stamp out this uh, new sect called Christianity. And so the Apostle Paul did not take a backseat to anyone alive at that time in education, in theological training, in soul winning fervor, in, uh, in a passion for the truth and in bravely, courageously walking with God. It, he was so accomplished. He had so many exploits that even in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, it talks about him being taken away, it says, into the third heaven. In other words, he, um, he was given a vision of heaven itself and it's as if he were in fact there. Paul's exploits didn't make the other church leaders jealous 
On the contrary, they were encouraged. They're in verses 17 through the first part of verse 20. They're in verse 20. And when they heard it, when they heard Paul, I mean, Paul likely told them, spent hours and hours, maybe even days telling them, listen to what all has gone on since we last met, met months and years earlier. He took a long time to explain in detail all of the exploits that had taken place and these church leaders, uh, they didn't hear him bragging at all. They didn't uh, read into, into that, that that's feigned humility. Well, God, look what God did. And, and really, he was bragging on himself. No, no, it was genuine humility through these exploits. And they rejoiced in that. What did they see? They saw in him Micah 6, 8. Micah 6, 8 says, um, he has shown the old man what is good and what the Lord requires of thee to do justly. Paul did that. He lived a life above reproach. And to love mercy, he did that. It didn't matter who it was. He wanted to share the love of Christ with those folks and to walk humbly with thy God. And in fact, no matter how many exploits he had, no matter how many accomplishments, he was one who walked humbly with God. Paul modeled what he wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 13 and verse 4, 1 Corinthians, where it says, love vaunteth not itself. He's not trying to um, uh, export all of these accomplishments so that you'll think better of him. Love does not think of itself uh, too highly. It's not puffed up. He recognized that one of the primary expressions of biblical love was humility. Think of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was receiving top billing among all the preachers um, in the land up to that point, up to the point of the, the earthly ministry of Christ and where Jesus came to him and said that he needed to be baptized. And John the Baptist says, oh no, I'm the one who has to bow before you. I'm the one who needs to humble myself before you. Even though John the Baptist's exploits were notable, he didn't clamor for position. Instead, in John 3 and verse 30, he said, he must increase I must decrease. I must shrink away. I must go into the background and I'm going to do so unnoticeably because I want him to be um, thrust into the limelight, namely the Lord Jesus. He had that heart of humility and how attractive it was and how attractive it was in the life of the Apostle Paul. Barnabas, one of my all-time favorite people, I'm convinced that humility is the key to greatness and Barnabas personified that. It's not just that, that uh, we shouldn't seek greatness uh, uh, and if, uh, if, if, because humility being the key to greatness because if you're seeking greatness, then in fact you're not walking in humility. But those who are truly humble are the ones who are most used of God. Barnabas is one of those, those guys. I'm convinced that Barnabas is the, um, is the one in Acts chapter one who wasn't picked to be the apostle to replace Judas, but instead Matthias was picked. Well, you can look at the rest of the book of Acts. You never hear of Matthias again, yet Barnabas is written about all over the place in uh, the book of Acts and in the New Testament. His humility caused him to be exalted, caused God to exalt him. And so Humility through exploits. Paul demonstrated that to the degree that the early church, James, the pastor of that church, and all the other elders were present. They heard it and they glorified the Lord because of these exploits. Uh, Paul was uh, uh, walking in humility. Secondly, not only 
did, do we see humility through or in the midst of exploits with Paul? Verses 20b through 26, we three, see humility through an example. That is a living example, an actual example from uh, the Apostle Paul. You see, it's one thing to verbally give credit to God uh, for something like, well, listen to what God did, where all the time, maybe in the back of my mind, I'm quietly hoping that someone's going to give me credit for it. See, it's one thing to do that. It's another thing to actually demonstrate a spirit of humility on the spot, in practice, and yet we see that Paul did that because he didn't have anything to prove. He was educated beyond everybody else. Uh, He knew more theology. He was bold, courageous. He was wise. He was a world traveler, a missionary. He was one who would forgive. He was the total package. But this one element in the book of Acts wasn't apparent of where he had been tested. He hadn't yet been tested in the area of humility. Paul Will you take a back seat if God puts you in a position where you have to uh, come underneath the direction of others? Those who aren't as educated or as experienced or as spiritual, those who are the weaker brethren, will you bow low? Will you lay low before others? It would be like us putting um, a staff member or a deacon, maybe someone who's been through seminary or, or something like that, um, in a position to uh, follow the direction of someone else who hasn't walked with God very long or maybe doesn't know near as much uh, uh, or something like that. Just maybe make your own scenario. That's what Paul was asked to do in this situation. Even though he stood head and shoulders above everyone else in intellect and in experience, would he defer to someone else and take directions for the, from those who were less mature. That's the situation we see in the end of verse 20 through verse 26. Paul, we're wanting you to take the lead, take uh, 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 someone else, take the lead and you fall in behind them. Here's the problem. The problem is that there were thousands of Jews in Jerusalem who had been converted to Christ and they were truly uh, God's people. They were truly uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, like many in our day, those who are completed Jews, that is those who are actually Jewish, uh, who come to Christ, they still remain devoted to the ceremonial law. That is, um, they, uh, they would not, uh, um, they might transfer the Sabbath over onto Sunday and they wouldn't do any work on Sunday. Or maybe they wouldn't go to the store on that day or possibly um, they would uh, observe something else. For instance, uh, they would not uh, eat pork possibly or something like that. And the Apostle Paul covered that in detail in Romans chapter 14 and chapter 15, the whole realm uh, of Christian liberty. And so this particular group, There were four of them, four men who had entered into a vow Um, and they and apparently it was a Nazarite vow and the Nazarite vow taking going back to I think the book of Numbers, as I recall correctly, I'm not sure on that might have been from the book of Judges was a vow of separation. We are uh, intentionally and publicly separating from the world and and being separate unto God for a distinct season of time. Now it was accompanied by uh, no consumption of grapes or grape juice. That was part of it. Couldn't touch, touch a dead body of any kind, animal or human. And uh, you didn't cut your hair. Samson was an example of someone who uh, took a Nazarite vow. It's interesting. Jesus was not one who ever took um, a Nazarite vow. But apparently there was these four believing Christian Jews in the church at Jerusalem, and uh, they uh, they had taken this vow. Well, in the meantime, over the last few months and maybe years, 
they'd been getting reports back that uh, this guy named Paul, who used to persecute Christians and then got saved and now is one of our missionaries, he's telling Jewish believers, Christians uh, who were were Jews out there, that they're to uh, ignore and forsake Moses and Moses isn't any good. Well, Paul wasn't doing that. He was simply uh, preaching against legalism, that is salvation, by keeping the law. He wasn't saying the law was terrible. As a matter of fact, in Romans, he says the law is just and holy and good, but we can't keep the law in our own strength. And so the false report that was being given about Paul soiled the hearts um, of many of those uh, weaker new believers in Jerusalem. And so they, they told him about the allegations and they said, Paul, you need to come along with them. You need to take this Nazarite vow. And, um, and in fact, when they come to the point of ending the, uh, the vow and it being uh, th- this uh, period of separation is concluded, you need to offer to pay the sacrifice uh, that, that is bring the special offering, if you will, uh, that they were going to bring just to convince everyone that you really are on our team, that they can really trust you and, um, and that they don't have to be suspicious. Now, this was the weakness of all of those believing Jews. It wasn't Paul who was uh, struggling here. He wasn't the weak brother there. He was the one who was walking in liberty. He knew uh, that he was right with God on this. But in deference to those weaker brothers, in deference to all of those who might struggle with who he is, he said, I'm going to accommodate their desire. In humility, He came underneath them and as an expression of, yes, I also am separated unto God and from the world. I'm going to join hands with you and walk through this particular vow. It wasn't anything new for Paul, though, because in chapter 18 and verse 18 of Acts, in his second missionary journey, he had taken a Nazarite vow on his own as well. And so it wasn't compromise on his part. He didn't have to do it. He's not required to do that. Uh, no, in no way can anyone else uh, as a believer force a vow on another believer. Yet in his humility, he said, yes, I will. The great apostle Paul, uh, the missionary to the world, the theologian of grace and the, and the one who carried the gospel to the Gentiles and to all the known world, I will gladly lay low. I'll gladly come underneath leadership of those who are weaker, who are less experienced, um, and I will be humble. Now, he didn't say this. That's what happened because that's who he was. Humility is attractive. And what it did, not only did it not cause a, a rupture in the Jerusalem church, in the mother church, but when they saw him bring this offering from all of the other Gentile churches in the world and, uh, and give it to them, when, he, when they saw that he was willing also um, to uh, uh, ultimately take the vow and then shave his head with them and pay the offering at the temple and all, they recognized he is a genuine person who fears God. Now, Paul lived out his humility in a very practical way here. He didn't have to do that. It'd be like this. It'd be like if a new pastor was called to a church or a pastor was called to a new church. The congregation fasted and prayed and called this pastor 
And he came to that particular field. He accepted the call and they and, and the congregation said, um, you're a new pastor. And we'd we'd made a vow that uh, as a congregation, we were going to uh, corporately fast uh, and pray one day a week for uh, the next month. Uh, in the process of you coming on board and all of uh, and, and becoming the new pastor and all. And we are sure thinking that you're going to do that, too. It's been suggested by some that you're not going to do that. But uh, we really want you to do that. Now, that pastor could say, I have a liberty uh, to not have that put on me at all. Uh, no way you can you can uh, put that on me. Don't saddle me with the commitment that you made. But with the heart of the Apostle Paul, that new pastor of that church would come underneath those who maybe were viewing it as a requirement and would, in fact, uh, want to accommodate their weakness. That You're showing deference. You're not compromising. You're deferring to the weaker brother. A humble heart will not demand his or her own way. And that's what the Apostle Paul, he could have in righteousness said, no, this is not required of me. And I'm not denying Moses because the ceremonial law is fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, I don't have to do that. But that's not what the Apostle Paul did. He said, yeah, where can I sign up? I want to be with the team, too. And yes, I can come underneath those who are leading in this particular endeavor, even though they'd been saved a very short amount of time and didn't have any education, didn't have any experience. Humility does not strut its stuff. And it doesn't say I have to take the lead and be in charge. We're done with this. If I want every Bible looking at Hebrews, uh, not Hebrews, Ephesians chapter four, if you would, very quickly, if you don't mind, not to be forceful, but it's important that we see how important this subject is, how attractive humility is in and how Paul viewed it, led of the spirit of God to write this Ephesians chapter four, Ephesians four. And while you're making your way there. Paul just finished writing three chapters, chapters one, two, and three of the fundamentally critical doctrine of who a believer is in Christ, of our salvation, and now who we are and, and uh, uh, what it means and uh, what the purpose of the church is at the end of verse three. Unto uh, him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. And then Chapter four, five and six are the practical section, practical chapters of the book of Ephesians. In other words, it's it's the it's the uh, it's the 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 shoe leather. It's the the rubber meat in the road. It's how we live out our salvation, our life in Christ. Notice at the very beginning of chapter four, I therefore, because of what I've just told you about salvation and who we are in Christ, the prison Lord, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation to what you're, which you're called. In other words, okay, now, now believers be faithful. And this is the very first thing out of the gate. What is it? Be humble. You're to walk with all lowliness and meekness, long suffering. That means with a long fuse forbearing one another. In other words, not just putting up 
with one another, but loving and and being uh, considerate and sensitive to one another with a long fuse. How long? As long as it takes. How many times do you forgive? 70 times seven. And then when that, that number is up, then you probably need to start over with another 70 times seven. The very first thing in the practical section of the most important book about church um, life is be humble. Wow. What a calling. What a command. What a, um, a monkey, if you will, to put on our back that we are given instruction to have abject humility. That I'm not to say my way or the highway. Uh, I want my rights. I'm going to demand my pleasure and I want you to defer to me. No, we're to think of others more highly than we think of ourselves. Why? Because in the flesh, we're going to want to think of ourselves more highly. And yet scripture says, approach one another, minister to and with one another with all lowliness and meekness. How much is all lowliness and meekness? Not just some lowliness, not just I'll, I'll take a, a backseat occasionally. Okay, you've, uh, you've rubbed me uh, uh, that way enough. No, with all lowliness and meekness. How does, what does that look like? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, but committed himself unto him who judges righteously, who suffered, who uh, went to the cross, utterly undeserving, tempted at all points as we are yet without sin, and did so with a spirit of meekness and lowliness of saying, not only will I come under and, uh, and, and yield to, the, um, to someone who doesn't know as much as me and, and have the experience that I have and all the rest, but I will even submit and yield to the whip, to the crown of thorns, to the spear, to the cursing, and all the rest. Lowliness and meekness is what he calls his believers to have. That is not weakness any more than Jesus was weak. But it says, I'll not strut my stuff. I'll not demand my rights and my way. I'll not be pushy when it comes to um, how things are going to play out. What an example we see from Paul. It just, it blows me away. It blows I would be embarrassed to have been one of those elders to have said, oh, by the way, Paul, <laughs> um, need to let you in on something here. We got some folks not been saved very long at all, don't know anything, don't have any experience, never met you before, heard all kinds of stuff about you over the last few months. Uh, and, uh, and frankly, they're, they're just not real pleased with what they're hearing. Um, would you defer to them? <laughs> I mean, you're wanting to say, who are they? What do they know? They're the ones who are wrong here. They're the ones who are being petty and childish and weak. Um, tell them to get a life. Tell them to wake up and read some of my theology. Maybe then they'll understand who they are in Christ and they can put aside all of that. No, he did just the opposite. Oh, a Nazarite vow? I'm so thankful they want to be separated from the world and separated into God and really mean business about it. And sure, I'll come under them. Yeah, we can do that. And uh, part of this offering can go to, uh, to pay the sacrificial offering of the vow they made. Wow, what a giant. The attractiveness of humility. 
It's hard to define, but you sure know it when you see it. May we walk in all lowliness and meekness before him. Lord, uh, what?